0: Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. Hello, and welcome to the show. Today, it is just me, Beckett, with a follow-up minicast to episode 49, Gone with the Wind. This time, I would love to tell you all about the life of Hattie McDaniel, who won an Oscar for her 1939 portrayal of Mammy in that oh-so-famous movie. So let's start. Hattie was born on June tenth, 1893, the youngest of the 13 children of Susan Hobart McDaniel and Henry McDaniel, both of whom had been slaves. Papa Henry thought he might have been born at some point around 1838. He never remembered ever having parents of his own. He was sold at about age 9 to a planter named John McDaniel, from whom he took his name, and lived there in Tennessee for another 10 years or so. The Civil War started... And really, there's no impact for a while until the Union Army finally got close enough in 1863, so there was this great wave of slave defections to join the service and fight on the Union side. And despite the fact that he served valiantly and he was wounded very grievously, he had to fight for the most minuscule of pensions for the rest of his life, bureaucracy demanded Papers that he just simply had no way of having. He'd been a slave. He doesn't have a proof of birth. He doesn't have any of that stuff. He was treated very horribly. He was not alone. Many, many black soldiers were treated equally horribly, I am sorry to say. It's very shameful. This is the point at which he met his future wife, Susan Hobart, who already had some children, They uh, met and married, and the family moved from Tennessee, where the aftermath of the war was so dangerous and oppressive for the newly freed black population, to the promised land of Kansas City, the very edge of the Wild West, and then pushed further to Manhattan, Kansas, and Wichita. My hometown, um, the opportunities just were not there. Prejudice was just everywhere, no matter where you went. And in an era and a place where the only jobs for black men were grinding menial labor, Papa's increasingly debilitated condition made him unfit to work. And by the time Hattie was born, six of the children had died. Her family was living in desperate poverty, malnourished, no shoes, no heat. It was horrible. So, when she was five, the family followed a couple of Hattie's married sisters out to Denver, which had this reputation as a more egalitarian place, as the West often was for both women and minorities. Um, There were black doctors there. One was a woman. There were black millionaires. One of them was a woman named C.J. Walker, who had a beauty product empire. So, the schools were integrated there, and little Hattie was enrolled in the 24th Street School, which... I can't tell if it's still there. I don't think so, but I've put a photo of it on our Pinterest board. It's a very beautiful building. Beautiful on the inside, too, because it's an integrated school. Pretty rare. The family joined a church where all the McDaniels sang in the choir and became part of the closely knit black community in Denver. But as the black population grew, so did the oppression. Papa finally got his pension, but it was just not enough. Mama had to go out as a domestic servant, and so did Hattie's sisters, as they got old enough. And Mama assumed Hattie would just follow that track, and so she'd take her along to train her. But wait! Hattie had brothers and sisters who were making reputations for themselves as local entertainers, especially her brothers Otis and Sam, and Hattie adored them. She loved the very thought of the stage. I think... I think a lot of kids get the acting book this early, but in this case, it was more than glamour. It was was a ladder, I guess, an escape from her probable path. When she was eight, she got her chance. Her family was in particularly dire straits due to her father's medical expenses. Brother Otis came and snuck Hattie out after school, and they went and did an improv song and dance act for the crowd at a carnival. Over the course of the week, she got $5 in coins to take home to her mother, which is more than her mother made in a week. And, well, well, there might be something in this. And so it began. So she did shows with her siblings, a stint in J.M. Johnson's Mighty Minstrels. The highlight of that show was that the audience tried to out-cakewalk the cast. The cakewalk started out during slavery as kind of a mockery of the way that the white population was dancing it just got grew and grew and became kind of an event until eventually the white population started cakewalking too not realizing it had all along been a mockery of something they'd been doing This act was so popular that it was booked for engagements in front of white audiences, which is a pretty big deal. This whole time, Hattie's in high school. She went to East River High School. She had a few more successful shows and some fame. She was well-known. She was called upon. She had great reviews in the newspaper. Kind of um, a local notable. But Hattie dropped out of high school in her sophomore year. And even though she was known as, quote, Denver's little singing comedian, and people loved to come see her, the inevitable quicksand of domestic service just kept sucking her down. The shows didn't pay enough to keep body and soul together, so she took jobs as a maid for $5 a week, usually 14-hour days, six days a week. It was honorable work, honest work, she later insisted, but just to keep afloat for her real career, what she considered her real career on the stage. At 17, Hattie met a like-minded man, Howard Hickman, who was a miner by day and a piano player by night. In fact, he was the first person of color in Denver to accompany silent movies on his piano. Um, he was ambitious and popular and driven, just like Hattie. He had a dream of transcending his limited opportunities with his art. They fell in love, and they were soon married. Hattie was only 17, and her new husband was 22, and... And by all accounts, it was a great relationship. They were artists with day jobs, which is still a common enough situation. Um, Hattie was able, in a few years, to put together this mostly female, certainly all black, theater company, a minstrel company that worked in blackface. They uh, performed with burnt cork rubbed on their faces. Minstrel shows became popular after the war. They were shows done by white men in blackface. The stories did a lot to perpetuate stereotypes about the black population. There were stock characters, the lazy one, the comically stupid one, the overly sexy one, the man who'd got his hands on some gold at last and thought he was something else. I, I'm sorry to tell you, usually his name was Zip Coon, if you can believe that. And last, but certainly not least, the generous, selfless, loving, doting Mammy, which, of course, was largely a figment of wishful white imaginations. Mammy, which Hattie, on stage and in blackface, parodied that character. Her Mammy was sexy and snappy and wasn't taking anyone's crap But all through the medium of comedy, she was subversive, just like a medieval king might have a fool, a person who could say whatever they want under this umbrella of, quote, being funny. The audiences, all black, ate this up. She was famous in Denver, noted for her wit and for her daring. She was about to ramp it up a notch. She and her company worked up a new show, a dangerous show, to be performed in Whiteface. You heard me think about that for a minute. How shocking, in an era in which lynchings were not all that uncommon. That took nerve. It was going forward. The hall was booked. The newspapers were hyping it up. The audiences were circling the date on their kitchen calendars. March 4th. March 4th. And then suddenly, out of the blue, Howard Hickman, Mr. Hattie, died. Died. She was only 26, and the show was canceled, and Hattie was just devastated. She just disappeared from public view. She moved in with her parents, you know, I'm just a maid now, and it took a year, but the theater did get hold of her again. Comedy shows of her own writing, singing the blues in front of a full orchestra, touring all over the South in a vaudeville company it was hard to be a black vaudeville performer uh, on the road because when you traveled you had to kind of beg stays in audience members or producers houses there were no hotels available to you very few restrooms available to you is this restaurant going to serve me is this grocery store going to serve me am I going to be hassled on the road is this area going to be dangerous there's just no way to know it was a it was a tough old life she appeared on the radio in fact maybe the first black woman to ever sing with an orchestra on the radio and of course being a white ladies made in between isn't that a strange situation one night people are calling you a red hot mama and an inspiration and the next morning you're told to scrub a toilet In these last Denver years, she lost both parents. Her brother Otis and the rest of her siblings had headed west for greener pastures. She'd picked up a 'er ne'er-do-well second husband named Nim Lankford, who she quickly set free again. What was holding her here? It was time to go. Patti had a second major career as a blues singer in the music hubs of Kansas City and Chicago, and a third one as a recording artist. She has upwards of 20 songs recorded, and a fourth one as a songwriter. Her songs were just steamy and full of double entendre. There's a reason I don't use a lot of blues songs in this PG podcast. A cookie's not a cookie, necessarily, if you know what I mean. And Chicago, during Prohibition, well, the goings-on must have been eye-opening. So here's this powerful, intelligent, driven, creative woman, and her white daytime employers might not have recognized their quiet maid as this provocative personage. Still, with the domestic service, no matter what else was happening, but at last, a break. In 1929, she landed a spot in the chorus of Mr. Ziegfeld's production of Showboat. so 15 weeks of paid and steady work to pack houses. And then they headed off to Milwaukee for another week of applause, and then, all of a sudden, Mr. Ziegfeld laid most of the chorus off and stranded them. Hattie was broke, and in a strange city where she'd never been. She got a job as a restroom attendant at a white nightclub called the Suburban Inn. Another derailment, another dead end. What is going on? Can't imagine how sad she was. And then that thing happened. You know, Lucy Ricardo's dream situation for sure. The singer had gone home. The band was just kind of filling in time, not very busy at the place. All of a sudden, people kept coming, 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 coming. The house was suddenly packed, and a call went out from the manager. Just someone, anyone, step in, you know, so the bootleg alcohol could keep flowing, and the profits could keep going. Out steps Hattie McDaniel. She's in her restroom attendance uniform, and she sings one song and stops the show. The band stops. Everyone stops. The room is silent. We did not No, we had a freaking superstar in the ladies' powder room, but we sure do now. (laughs) They started over. The band passed the hat for her afterwards. $90 in the hat. $90. In a time where she made $7 in a week. (laughs) Um, Yeah, that is a big break. And so for two years, she headlined at that nightclub. You never know what is going to be your big break do you. You never know. America had its own break, a breakdown. The Depression um, really took its toll on nightclubs and Hattie's income. Her brother Sam was a radio star out in Hollywood, and her sister Etta was making a living as an extra in movies. So it's time for Hattie to head to California at last. So I'm going to take a little break, and when I come back, we'll see how this Hollywood place works out for our friend Hattie McDaniel.
1: The History Chicks is brought to you by Audible.com, the Internet's leading provider of audiobooks, with well over 150,000 titles to choose from. For you, our friends, Audible is offering a free audiobook download so you can try out their service. We've already recommended Margaret Mitchell's Gone with the Wind, and of course it's still available. But how about something more topical? One to consider right now is Outlander by Diana Gabaldon. The TV series on the Starz Network couldn't be a bigger hit. And you can catch up with Jamie and Claire on your very own 33-hour audio version. Because you know the book always has more details than the movie. To receive your free audiobook download today, just follow the Audible.com link on our website, thehistorychicks.com.
0: And we're back. Hattie McDaniel has come a long way from her impoverished beginnings in Wichita, Kansas. She's arrived in Hollywood with twenty dollars and registers immediately with a laundry service, as she's very practical, but also with central casting, because a girl's got to have a dream. Movie roles for black players were, in fact, the very, very same stereotypical roles you got way back in those old minstrel shows. Just like we said in the Gone with the Wind episode, no one's offering roles as doctors or romantic leads here. Extras, someone from the studio, just call in and order crowds by the type of person, give me a couple of fat guys, like 20 kids... A Few Pretty Teenagers, etc. I imagine that's just how it goes today. At $7.50 a day, Hattie McDaniel appeared in hundreds of movies. But they came in kind of randomly, so she did a lot of laundry, too. Brother Sam got a gig on the radio show he'd been on for seven years called Optimistic Donuts. Which, um... There's an old saying that the optimist sees the donut and the pessimist sees only the whole, and this was sponsored by the Davis Perfection Bakery. So I guess it made a little sense. Um, It was a variety and comedy show, and Hattie was great at voices and played three parts. She had showed up for day one in this fabulous dress from her blues days, and the announcer said, My, Hattie, you've sure gone high, hat." Which means, A, you're overdressing fabulous, and B, kind of someone to be reckoned with. So, Hi-Hat Hattie she became. She even used it in some stage work she got. And soon, old Hi-Hat Hattie got her very own radio show. Hi-Hat Hattie and her boys. It was a song and comedy show. So, uh, very saucy, by the way. So, she's back on her way again. She got a few speaking roles, pretty minor, but, you know, paid 30 or $40 a day and then broke out with a role in Blonde Venus with Marlena Dietrich. Hattie played it sassy, and she admitted this maid would have been fired on day one in real life. Several books I read seemed to give Hattie the motivation that she was kind of mocking the stereotype of the good, loyal servant, just like she did with that very first minstrel mammy so long ago. Everyone in the black community kept thinking if they just played the game for a while, surely better, more three-dimensional parts would come, and as they didn't, and didn't, there began a sort of uh, bitter feeling against the studios, yes, but also against the actors playing, still playing, those dang old minstrel parts. One member of the black press actually called Hattie McDaniel, quote, "...nothing but a handkerchief head." Hmm, let's let that simmer in the background for just a little while. Meanwhile, Hattie worked with Will Rogers, Shirley Temple, Barbara Stanwyck, Henry Fonda, Jean Harlow, Clark Gable, Catherine Hepburn. She joined the Screen Actors Guild and was earning as much as $250 a week. Reviews in the white press were complimentary if condescending. I think that's kind of inevitable. She got a major part as Queenie in the movie Showboat, which catapulted her into high demand. So in the next two years, she made 20 movies. And she spent her money as I would like to. Sure, she bought a few things for herself, a house, a car, a piano. But more importantly, she showered her family with gifts and support and her friends. She helped them through tough times or helped them to get better jobs. She supported businesses owned by the black community, openly and specifically did that. She supported some causes, some very personal causes. For example, once she bought instruments for a school in a poor neighborhood and saved their music program, which, as the daughter of two symphony musicians, I especially love. So off screen, she was very fashionable. Classic lines, quiet colors, respectable and chic. She had amazing parties, to which Clark Gable always came. They were the best of friends. Many people in Hollywood would come to her parties because they knew Clark Gable was going to be there. And then became friends with Hattie McDaniel. I mean, this is Hattie McDaniel, she would say. I'm only a mammy at work. Curious, Miss Hattie, that you would put it that way. A mammy at work. The word was out. That book, gone with the wind, that had been flying off the shelves. The word viral, of course, was not yet in use, but in fact, that's what it was. That book had just been optioned. It was going to be made into a movie. The black press went crazy. Demeaning! Revisionist history! The N-word! Set us back a hundred years! The NAACP lobbied hard to prevent the movie. Those old stereotypes, again, are we never going to be free? The producer reassured them he would take so much care not to worry. Here's what he said. I hasten to assure you that as a member of a race that is suffering very keenly from persecution at present, I am sensitive to the feeling of minority people. This is 1938. David O. Selznick, of course, would be Jewish. Uh, and Hattie McDaniel went out and bought herself a copy of that book. And you know there was a national search for Scarlet. There was a quieter, just as intense competition for the part of Mammy, First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt's maid campaigned for it, with an encouraging letter from her boss attached to the picture. Uh, There were several prominent actresses who might have gotten the part, but in the end, it helps to have your brother's friend Bing Crosby and your own friend Clark Gable in your corner, and soon the part was hers. Notable during filming, the set was less segregated than most were, probably because of the beleaguered cast teaming up in solidarity against that micromanaging producer David Selznick. But... The black members of the cast thought it was necessary to always show up for each other's scenes and applaud for each other because there was really not too much gratitude coming their way. Clark Gable and Hattie McDaniel loved working together, by the way, and he did put real whiskey in Mamie's glass after Bonnie was born, but either Hattie is a supremely good actress or that isn't the take they used. Most importantly, Hattie McDaniel was instrumental in pressuring the producer, David O. Selznick, to take the N-word out of the script, despite his assurances to the black community that he was being sensitive. He could not comprehend that word's power. And during the filming of that scene where Mammy's running around bossing everyone because Miss Ellen's home, she kept refusing and doing it without the word and finally yelling about it to the point where he finally got it. Okay, okay, we're taking it out. And they took it out. It doesn't appear in the movie, although it appears a lot in the book. At the premiere in Atlanta, Hattie and all the black cast were specifically prohibited from going And their pictures were not to be in the lobby or in the program next to their white co-stars. Not even that. As we said before in the Gone with the Wind episode, Clark Gable was threatening to boycott the whole thing until Hattie diffused the tension by sending, quote, regrets to an invitation that had never really been issued at all. The audience response to Hattie's performance was so enthusiastic. Now this is a white audience, remember. Particularly the scene on the stairs where Mammy um, tells Melanie about Rat Butler breaking down after Bonnie's death. Now, in the book, I have to say, Mammy's the one that made Bonnie afraid of the dark in the first place, just to keep that naughty child in bed. Hmm. Margaret Mitchell, the author of Gone with the Wind, sent a sort of insensitive telegram to Hattie McDaniel that said, Wish you could have heard how much they loved you. Yeah, me too. During the promotional tour, other actresses were asked for fashion tips or about their romances, but Hattie McDaniel was asked for recipes. Like, the white audiences just could not separate the woman from the character. You know, what would Mammy know about fashion? What would Mammy know about romance? Back in the kitchen, Hattie. She really accepted this just as she would accept other direction from any white employer. Is pretty much how she put it. I mean, she was already accustomed to living a pretty dual life by now. You know, star by night, domestic worker by day, and this kind of seemed like more of the same thing. I'm sad to say, it really was the same thing. At the 1939 Academy Awards, Hattie McDaniel made history. She was the first black performer to ever win an Oscar on Best Supporting Actress, and she received a standing ovation from The Room, wearing a beautiful blue gown with a gardenia in her hair, Hattie gave a short speech and then went back to her table in tears. The two-top table, at the back of the room, where she was sitting, all alone with her date. But at least she was in the same room this time. I guess we can regard that as an advance. In that speech, which I put a link to in the show notes, Hattie says, quote, "'I hope I am a credit to my race.'" For you see, while she was working so hard to get by and get ahead the best way she knew how, the NAACP was attacking her for being Uncle Tom, and perpetuating stereotypes. She was devastated to receive letters from black soldiers who were fighting in World War II that took the time to call her a, quote, disgrace. She responded to them by becoming the president of the Hollywood Victory Committee, basically the black division of the USO, and organizing and performing in shows to keep troop morale up. And in some of her shows, I mean, Betty Davis was in some of her shows. So this is not a hole-in-the-wall type of operation. She responded to Walter White of the NAACP by saying he was only one-eighth black, so what right did he have to criticize her anyway? Uh, I don't think you're getting his support back. She joined the black sorority Sigma Gamma Rho and started her own group called Les Femmes d'aujourd'hui, which means the women of today. Both of those organizations are dedicated to philanthropy and to black advancement, which had really been her philosophy all along. She spent her money on supporting other people, on advancing the black cause, so she spent so much of her time and money to help others. You'd think her career would have taken off after Gone with the Wind, but she was really struggling. Where was there to go, really? She had a couple of roles afterward, but people regarded it as a great artist reduced to mugging for the camera. David Selznick, the producer of Gone with the Wind, prohibited her from using any, quote, mammyisms in her own work, and even trademarked the term Mammy. He really handicapped her, and the parts she'd been accustomed to playing were kind of thinning out, largely because of the efforts of the NAACP. The Casey Call, a black newspaper in particular, called her enemy number one. She must go, they said. I just, that's horrible. They personally targeted her. I've begun to realize, she said, that there's only 18 inches between a pat on the back and a kick in the back side. It was generational, as much as anything else, I think. Younger performers had great disdain for the just-get-along strategy, and they were demanding change. She had married her third husband, Lloyd Crawford, who was a realtor with hopes of settling down and having children, but after a false pregnancy and some episodes of domestic violence, that marriage fell apart just as the war was ending. And during this whole tumultuous period... Some of Hattie's neighbors, some of Hattie's white neighbors, were trying to force her and other black property owners out of the neighborhood. They said that there was a restrictive covenant. It had been in place since the turn of the century, and non-Caucasians should not be allowed in this development. Hattie and friends won the eventual court case and, in the process, made those kind of restrictive covenants illegal in the United States under the 14th Amendment. It was a groundbreaking case. It was called the Sugar Hill case, if you wanted to look it up. It would help black homeowners from now on, and Hattie had been the one that had organized the opposition to it. But in 1946, her appearance in the movie Song of the South, based on the tales of Uncle Remus, you know, Br'er Rabbit and such, brought howls of protest again from black audiences. You're now the tool of our white oppressors. To which she responded, I never want to disgrace my race, but I cannot give up my livelihood. The next year, 1947, she landed a starring role on the radio show Beulah, in which she played, yes, another maid, but this character was more level-headed, sassier, more her, more hattie. An audience of 10 million people tuned in every night to listen to her. The NAACP was torn by this one. There is a black woman in a prime role as a star on a major radio show, but yet again a maid. To which Hattie responded, I'd rather be making $700 a week playing a maid than $7 being one. And it was her point that there are domestic servants. That is what the majority of black women who are working are doing, so why are we denying that they exist? She's basically representing her public. She had a disastrous four-month marriage to a possibly gay, definitely horrible social climber, which drained most of her money and quite a bit of her spirit. Her health was really not in a good place. She had diabetes. She had heart trouble. She moved to a house that was all on one floor where the Ku Klux Klan burned a cross on her lawn on Country Club Drive, a burning cross. Now, in August of 1951, Her friend, with the absolutely great name of Wonderful Smith, found her, collapsed. She'd had a heart attack in her house. And after a half a year of grueling recovery, of course, she'd been replaced on the radio show, she discovered that she had advanced breast cancer. There was nothing that anyone could do. Even if there had been something, uh, Hattie McDaniel had, in fact, become a Christian scientist. And medical intervention was no longer part of her philosophy. October twenty fifth, 1952, Hattie McDaniel died all alone, and the newspaper headline the next day said, Beloved Beulah of Radio Passes, City Mourns. They had to block off four blocks in every direction from the location of her funeral. 5,000 people attended. In her will, she had asked to be buried at Hollywood Park Cemetery, along with some other stars of stage and screen, but the cemetery said, No, this is a white cemetery only. And so, she was buried in the Rosedale Cemetery, quote, where the young of our race will be inspired by her for whom she did so much. So she missed it all. The Brown versus Board of Education case happened right after she died. The case in which, in fact, the very first black Supreme Court justice had served as a lawyer. She missed the entirety of the Civil Rights Movement. And through that lens, her whole body of work, her whole self became kind of like a joke, exactly what people are trying to end. Her Oscar, so lovingly dedicated in her will to Howard University, disappeared, still hasn't been found. Over the passage of time, people's regard for what she did became more gentle, more measured, more balanced. In the 1990s, Spike Lee said, quote, The black pioneers were great talents. We have more choices, and we must do better. We should have greater understanding of what they've gone through. Sidney Poitier, in the year 2002, said, quote, I accept this award on behalf of black performers upon whose shoulders I stood to see where I might go. In 2010, actress Monique, when accepting her Academy Award for her role in Precious, walked up in a blue gown with a gardenia in her hair and said, quote, I'd like to thank Hattie McDaniel for enduring all she had to so that I would not have to. That actually gave me chills. To the words of those performers, let me just add, it's never easy to break new ground. Hattie McDaniel was brave. She always helped others. She persevered against both great odds and against harsh criticism from all sides. She believed in herself. She believed in a better future for everyone. And if that's not a role model, I just don't know what is. Thanks for listening. For show notes, links to the things we talked about today, or to donate, please visit us at thehistorychicks.com. Follow us on Twitter at thehistorychicks, with an X, or like us on Facebook, without an X. Listen to us on Stitcher, the super fabulous radio app of tomorrow. If you'd like to in real life, please tell a few friends, or leave a review for us on iTunes. Our music comes courtesy of Music Alley. Visit them at music.vevio.com.
1: I won't be a victim, a beggar, or a fool, and I try to live. Take a high road And walk away from you I'll find an angel To lift me up in time I'll listen for the voice That speaks my better mind I'll try to forgive myself Not hiding sight, and I'll take the high road and walk away. Try to hurt you back, or say I never cared. I'll just take the high road and walk away from here. My heart is battered, my soul is bruised, my face is wearing that smile. I. Hear with my